0: Welcome everyone to the Advent Evening of Recollection with the title the Apocalypse Now question mark or uh, rather uh, Let's find out about this abomination of desolation. So that's the topic for today's uh, evening recollection I have to ask a pardon. The the poster that I made was a bit hasty seven to nine. This will not be a two-hour talk So we're saved from that uh, horror And uh, so this will be about 45 minutes is my goal. Three sections, about 15 minutes each. And uh, of course we have to have three sections because that's what I do. So we'll have uh, maybe 15 minutes on the past, 15 on the present, and then 15 on the future. So I have my little timer here to keep me honest. So I'll try to stick to that because otherwise I'll, I'll get carried away. Okay. So, what are our, what's the topic? Well, as you know, the last Sunday, uh, the 24th and last Sunday after Pentecost, you know that Gospel well. It's the end of the world Gospel, Matthew 24. And then what's very rare is the very next Sunday in the liturgy, the first Sunday of Advent, you have the same Gospel selection, but from St. Uh, Luke's Gospel. And so it's very rare that that doubling happens. And so it's a way of Holy Mother Church kind of really emphasizing something. This is really important for this season of Advent. Um, so I'll just read a little bit and then we'll go through. So this, uh, the question is, what is this abomination of desolation? So here's a little bit of Matthew chapter 24 and it'll be the theme of this evening's talk. Our Lord speaking, of course, to his apostles. So when you see the abomination of desolation, Spoken of by the Holy Prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his tunic. And it goes on much longer, but we'll just take that little bit to start there. So, how are we to understand this saying of our Lord? Let's, again, we'll think of it in terms of the past, present, and future. The underlying theme here, one of the underlying themes of tonight, you've heard me say this before if you've heard my preaching, that to understand prophetic words, we're not looking for a univocal thing, meaning just one thing only, but rather there's often a layers and pluralities of meanings, successive, successive meanings, which build on one another over time. So we're not looking for the one single answer because there is no one single answer to that question. All right. So in the past then, first, let's ask. Well, our Lord references this abominate this phrase, abomination of desolation, spoken of by Holy Prophet Daniel. So let's first look at him. Now, go back in your minds. Holy Prophet Daniel probably was just a little boy when the uh, Babylonians came in 587 and uh, the the Babylonian captivities, right, took the Jews back to Babylon, okay. So he's probably just a little boy. So 6th century B.C. So about 600 B.C., Holy Prophet Daniel says this. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, namely Jerusalem and the temple. And he shall cause a sacrifice and an offering to cease and in that temple shall be erected the abomination of desolation until the end is poured out upon that desolator. And he continues, Holy Prophet Daniel chapter 9. Now, he, he, he says that again two more times. I'll just give you a different... He says it in chapter 11 and also chapter 12. Forces shall appear and profane the temple in Jerusalem and the fortress And they shall take away the continual sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. And he has a repetition again in verse uh, chapter 12, which we don't need to say again. So that in the first place is what our Lord is referencing. Now, Holy Prophet Daniel, of course, is looking sometime, somehow in the future. So what is that abomination of desolation? So there are several candidates for this uh, as we say, ignoble distinction or ignominious distinction. There are several candidates. Yes, so the first candidate for this uh, distinction is Antiochus IV, the so-called Epiphanes or the Magnificent. So you read about him in the books of the Maccabees and I'm going to give you a couple quotes just in case you forgot from your uh, studies. So the Maccabees of course this is uh, written contemporaneous so this would be 2nd century BC and we're looking right at 168 167 BC this is what is happening what happened Antiochus came and did what on the 15th day of the month in 167 footnote Antiochus IV erected an abomination of desolation on the altar of burnt offering 1 Maccabees 1 54 you're thinking to yourself, what is he talking about? Well, let's hold on and look at 2 Maccabees, chapter 6, 1 and 2. There's a repetition. Not long after, Antiochus IV sent the Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer to live by the law of God and also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of the Olympian Zeus. Okay. So there you have it. That is the first answer to the what is this abomination of desolation, a contemporary, not a contemporary, not a contemporary witness, but a little bit after in the first century A.D. The famous Josephus was a Jewish historian and he wrote several famous works which have been preserved and are still read and studied by scholars today, Jewish antiquities and the Jewish wars. This is from the Jewish antiquities. This is Josephus's account now. Now he's in the first century AD looking back, and this is his account. When Antiochus had built an idol, an altar, in the place of God's altar, he then sacrificed swine upon it and there offered a sacrifice neither according to the law of God nor unto the Jewish religion in that place so you see clearly then what this abomination is the abomination is this idol the idol of Antiochus the fourth either of himself or scholars there's no real consensus here um, of the statue of Jupiter Olymp, uh, the Olympian Zeus so Zeus in the Greeks or for the Romans uh, Jupiter of course so um that, that is a fulfillment of the prophecy. But that's not the only candidate. So, uh, so Antiochus IV is candidate number one. But we have a second one, St. Jerome, in his commentary on this gospel. Now, this abomination of desolation can either be interpreted literally, speaking of Antichrist, and that's a whole other talk, which we're not talking about today, or of the image of Tiberius Caesar that Pilate placed near the temple, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, so you can just put a footnote there. Or the equestrian statue of Hadrian, which stands to this present day in the place of the Holy of Holies. So St. Jerome gives us two more candidates, as you see. St. Jerome continues, according to the usage of the old scriptures, the abomination is another word for an idol and this is why desolation is added, because an idol will be placed in the desolated and destroyed temple. All right, not to belabor the point. Hopefully this is obvious enough. Where the proper temple in Jerusalem, where the true worship of the true God is supposed to have been, that is destroyed. And then they set up worships to false pagan gods, even with the images, obviously. Okay. So there are two, St. So Jerome mentions two things, and we'll talk about them both. He mentions the images of Tiberius Caesar. Where, where is that mentioned in the gospel? It's not. And what about the sequestrian statue of Hadrian? That doesn't show up either. Okay, so we have to look outside the sacred scripture to get these references. We'll go to Josephus again because he's the standard authority on these matters. So scholars call this the episode of the Roman standards. I have to check my time because I can get carried away with Roman law stuff because that's one of my interests. So the episode of the Roman standards. So when Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate is the uh, procurator. Is that right? Prefect. It's a, it's a debate at any rate. In 1961, we found, we, scholars, not me. In 1961, they found, uh, archaeologists found this, uh, stone with the inscription as Pontius Pilate, prefect at that time. So could he also have been a procurator at some other time? Yes, but certainly he was, a, also, he was a prefect. At any rate, what is this episode of the Roman standards? So according to Josephus, we don't know exactly when, maybe 26 AD, so a little bit before our Lord's public ministry, Pontius Pilate first takes over possession of the territory of Judea. And when he does so, he comes and he brings with him, of course, legions. And those legions are carrying, you've watched movies, you've seen these things at least in the movies or hopefully in your textbooks. They have those standards and the golden medallions. And those golden medallions would have the image of the ruling uh, Caesar at that time, Tiberius Caesar. And what did they do? Well, they had taken over the temple complex, right? And just like you see in the movies. It's quite accurate. The pilot had his place, the praetorium. And then it's right on the temple mount. It's like right, you know, right across the street, <laughs> literally. And so imagine the Romans there with their standards and the image of Caesar. So as you might... This is not in the Gospels, by the way. So this is just Josephus, a historian. So what Josephus says is that... Uh, There was basically riots. (laughs) They rioted for five days, and they demanded that these false images, these pagan images, as it were, be removed from the precinct of the temple. So, there you go. And they were successful. Why is that important? Well, for for many reasons. It's very interesting, I think, just in terms of historical points, but... For, uh, you remember the gospel, we had it a few Sundays ago, where uh, the famous, uh, you know, do we need to pay tax to Caesar or not? And our Lord's famous response says, well, first he says, well, does anyone here have a coin of the tributes? And it was Pharisees and Sadducees, right? The very people who had rioted just a few years ago because of the image of Caesar. Well, that same image is on the Roman coins. And you'll notice in the gospel, it didn't take a long time for them to find one. Oh, yeah, here's one. So they were exposed to be hypocrites. That's just a really nice little detail there. So, oh, so you're happy to carry those images in your pocket, but okay, that's fine. All right. So anyway, that's very interesting, I think. So, So anyway, so there's a backstory to all those things in the gospel. So that's candidate number two then. So Tiberius Caesar, also his image is an abomination of desolation. And the third, Hadrian. So we're skipping over a very important point, namely 70 AD. And all of this, Matthew 24, can be read as fulfilled in a very profound way in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. So that's absolutely true. So after that, another Caesar, so Hadrian. So 117 to 138 is when he reigned. So after Jerusalem's destroyed now, so that's the destruction part. But then what does he do? Uh, Dio Cassius, uh, a near contemporary, almost a contemporary witness, a little bit one generation later, tells us this, that in about 135 AD, so the, the temple's destroyed in 70, and then the Romans say, well, okay, it's time. We should make this a bit more profitable land. So let's build something. So Publius, so we call him Hadrian or Adrian, his full name in Latin, Publius Aelius Adrianus, he rebuilt Jerusalem and named it after himself, (laughs) and he called it the Aelia Capitolina. Yeah, I can't concentrate. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yes, so... Aelia um, Capitolina, yes. So he basically built a temple to himself, named it after himself. So he said, well, named it to Well, that's part of his name, not to Hadrian, so at any rate. And uh, yes, so there are two statues there. So he built a new temple to Zeus, and there's two statues, one to uh, Jupiter and then one to himself, a famous, uh, famous statue of Emperor Hadrian on horseback. So they call it the equestrian statue. So both of those, of course, would be pagan images or idols set up in the place of desolation. Okay, we did it. 14 minutes, so that's pretty good. That's where I wanted to be. That I get bogged down in that section. So okay. So hope that's that's in the past. So that's that's section one. <laughs> section one, abomination of desolation. Um, good. So you have that there. So let's change the focus then to the present. So, as I say, this whole talk can be thought of and seems of uh, successive levels of fulfillment of this prophecy of Matthew 24. So we saw at least three very significant historical ways in which those prophecies have been already fulfilled. But what sense now are these prophecies also still being fulfilled right now? And then the future, of course, that's point three. All right, point two. Let's have a little recap and think of it now for the present. So, quoting now, Matthew 24, our Lord, when you see, make it very present for yourself, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Holy Prophet Daniel, take heed. If you're on the housetop, do not go down to take what is in your house. If you're out working in the field, don't go back to get your tunic, etc. Okay, we'll have a little meditation on some of those points following saint jerome saint jerome as you know is one of the patrons of scripture studies so he's a doctor of the church of course from the great four latin doctors at any rate so we're taking his lead doesn't mean that everything he said is you know uh, on the level of dogma it's not uh, but it's it's a very good place to start your scripture studies saint jerome quotation now from St. Jerome. The abomination of desolation can also be understood. Uh, so St. Jerome is the 4th century, so he's writing this in about 398, okay? So think about, so 400 AD. okay? So St. Jerome says, we, you know, his, his auditors, or the people he's writing this letter to, his commentary for, we can think of this abomination of desolation now as all or any perverted doctrine when we see perverted doctrines standing up in the holy place that is in the very church and proclaiming herself to be god false teaching let us then draw near to the eternal mountains which god illumines wondrously all right what does that mean well i don't think it's very complicated remember 4th century so he's writing the very end of the 4th century what had you know, I'm gonna ask a rhetorical question. What was the great conflict for the fourth century church? In terms of heresy, of course, the heresy of Arius, Arius, the great, the arch, the prototypical heretic, of course, right? He denied the blessed Trinity. He said there was a time, this is heresy. Okay, so don't quote me. This is Arius. There was a time when the sun was not it doesn't sound very problematic. No, it's a problem. that It is. The son must be co-eternal and co-equal and of the same substance with the father. Arius denied that. He says, no, we need to make the father a little bit, you know, better. <laughs> this is, of course, heresy. Well, this took the church four centuries to really stomp out, and it's even with us still uh, today. So, at any rate. Um, so, think of that. Uh, now, of course... You know, many, many bishops were heretics. <laughs> they were Arians, and uh, well, that shouldn't disturb uh, our faith if we find that these things can happen even today. So, what else can this abomination of desolation be? So, we've seen perverted doctrine, fine, Saint Jerome, but this abomination can also be the idol of sin which we set up in the temple of our souls. Okay, we'll just pause there. It's much easier to see as if we're the heresy or the sin in the other than the darkness or of sin in ourselves, as our Lord tells us. St. Jerome makes his little commentary. What is this, let us not go down and take anything? Ah, he says this. So he says that that parable, the man who's up on the rooftop, or the one who's out in the field. They're both commanded, don't go back into the house to get something. Okay, well, what's this all about? St. Jerome says this. Our Lord is telling us not to go down, let us not go back into the house, that is to say, back to our former way of life. Neither should we seek things that we have put behind us. Rather, let us sow in the field of the spirit that we might receive spiritual fruit. St. Jerome. So that's a way also we can interpret the abomination of desolation, any opposition to God that we have ourselves. Good. Still in the present? Yes. St. Jerome Oh, sorry, we'll go back to the gospel for a moment then, because our Lord continues. So now we're continuing a little bit more on in that Matthew 24, uh, that great discourse. Christ continues and says to the apostles, Therefore, if anyone should say to you during this time of tribulation... Now, when is that time of tribulation? Well, it's in the past, and it's in the present, and it's in the future. So, if anyone should say to you at that time, Lo, here is the Christ! Or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will show great signs and wonders, such that would even lead astray, if it were possible, the elect. I have told you these things beforehand. So, our Lord continues, If they should say to you, Look, the Lord is in the wilderness, do not go. If they say, look, he's in this inner secret, inner room, do not believe it. For even as the lightning is from the east and goes as far as the west, so will be this coming of the Son of Man. All right, well, it's a very difficult passage that can be understood, of course, in many different ways. But for our purposes here, we'll just follow St. Jerome. We're thinking of this passage in terms of the present for every baptized Christian. This is St. Jerome. One way to understand this passage. Do not believe that the Son of Man is either in the desert where the schismatics dwell or in the inner room of the heretics. Believe rather that the Orthodox faith shines out in the Catholic Church from the east as far as the west. Again, we're presented with that scandal as it were the scandal of the sin of an individual baptized the scandal of schism the scandal of heresy and why do i mention these things not to depress you but to the contrary really those things have been uh, in the church and part of the church from the very beginning of the church as you know you read the gospels we see that of the 12 apostles there was Judas, betrayed the Lord. Of the twelve apostles, there was Peter, who denied the Lord three times. These things are, as it were, scandals, but they're things that we can take instruction from, not just for the one time in 30 AD, but uh, for us now, even as we live. Are those, when we see schism or... Heretical bishops, are these things sad? Yes. But should they disturb our faith? No. They've always been there in the church, and today is no different than those times. So and so what do we need to resist in this in this context? Saint Jerome. Don't go out into the desert of the schismatics or into the inner room of the heretics. Now you could go different ways with that. Basically that temptation is always there to set oneself up as the arbiter and to set oneself up as the judge of all truth rather than where that really is. Namely in in the Catholic Church. To say, well, I really know what's best so I'm gonna do this instead and that can be interpreted in a number of ways. There's always a temptation, there's another, t- you can also understand this, so St. Jerome says uh, we can understand this in terms of schism or, or heresy. One heresy uh, that's certainly was there in the first century AD, but also uh, present at the time of St. Jerome and continues to this day, is the heresy of Gnosticism, Gnosticism, You hopefully you've heard of that or or know what that is but I'll just review just quickly what does this mean Gnosticism well from the Greek word gnosis meaning knowledge what what are it's not something you can pin down so there isn't an official sect you know I'm the priest of the Gnostics that's not how it was it's kind of a vague body of doctrine but what is the essential thing the essential characteristic of Gnosticism Is that someone who's a Gnostic thinks that I have this special, hidden, revealed knowledge that no one else does, or only just a few little people. And most of the world who thinks that they know, they're all deceived. So it's very seductive, isn't it? It's very appealing to our fallen human nature. We all want to be in on things. We want to be in on the know. We want to be on the inside track, to have the inside scoop. These are all things that we... That's just in our nature to, to be that way. And so that temptation is always there. And that must be resisted. <laughs> and Gnosticism certainly takes many forms. Uh, but we'll, I'll just leave it also vague <laughs> uh, in that sense. But that also is an abomination of, of desolation. So we'll just leave it there. Okay, good. Well, we're doing well. Point three, and it's difficult to speak of the future, this will be kind of a present and future, because, uh, well, we're always on the cusp, aren't we, of uh, the future? Yes. Well, anyway, okay, so then, seeing these things at, are as they are, or if anything I have said is true in these last two points, like, so what, or or what then, or as I put on a little poster, which I don't know if it made it around, it's not important, Regardless of anything that I've said, how should we then live? This is a very practical point, and hope hopefully, hopefully the whole talk is, is practical. But this is a very practical question to ask. When we read this Gospel of St. Matthew, the end times, is it the apocalypse? And if it is or if it isn't, what should we do? And that's what this point is meant to be about. Let's look. Matthew 24. So we're all in Matthew 24. We will get to 25 by the end of this point three. And I have three points in this point three. So it's kind of a Dante three of threes here. So here we go. So you might ask yourself, well, things are pretty bad in the world. You know, we've got Russia and we've got whatever else, China and, you know, fill in whatever thing keeps you up late at night. You know, and so you might ask yourself, you know, is this, you know, are these signs of the end times? Is this the end of the world, like the second coming, like the big one? Is this it? Well, here's what our Lord says. Of that day, meaning the final apocalypse, the final Armageddon, the end. Of that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the sun. Arius would be happy. he interprets that incorrectly. Nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, our Lord will say that again a number of times, in fact. It is a repetition in chapters 24 and 25. He really is hammering this point. No one knows, no one knows, no one knows, until it's absolutely manifest, and that's the lightning from the east to the west, that's one way to interpret that. You won't have to wonder, it's not going to be a secret, like, I don't know, did he come? And then, like, the left behind series, you know, this is completely false, we don't don't embrace this as, as Catholics, no, this is completely wrong. Oh, well, I got, you know, the cars without a driver and things. No, that's, that's not how it's going to be. That's not how our Lord says. Not the traditional Catholic can understand you. At any rate, and our Lord continues. Watch, therefore, vigilate. So this point 3A is vigilate. Watch. And that's, of course, a synonym for pray. Watch. Watch, therefore, you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That's the end of chapter 24. Now Our Lord's going to pick this theme up again in chapter 26, but we have this really neat section in the middle, which is chapter 25. <laughs> Logically, that must be true. <laughs> okay, now it's really interesting. We read those gospels all the time in, for the confessors and for virgins. They're read all the time. In a way, it goes throughout the entire liturgical year, and you get lots of them in November and December. Um, they're just kind of piled up there. Um, so we've been, you've been hearing it a lot if you follow the Daily Mass, uh, and reading the, the lessons, and so it's, it's there all the time. And uh, as I say to some of my brother priests, I said, I don't know about you all, but um, I get a little tired of these readings. We read them all the time. But, okay, but there's, if in a way, like the answer, or one way to address the question, you know, how should we then live? What are we supposed to do if it's the end of the world? Or or if it's not the end of the world. As it turns out, the answer to that question is the same. And so therefore, at a very profound level for you and for me, it doesn't matter. And, and that should be really consoling. And you're going to say, well, Father, how do you know? Please don't take my word for it. Let's look at what our Lord says. And we're going to look at uh, two, three. We're going to look at three of the kingdom parables that immediately follow the discourse that we've just been talking about. So it's not like, oh, well, you're just picking and choosing whatever you want. No, this is immediately follows. And then I tell you, the kingdom of heaven shall be like this. And we have all these parables. Let's look at them. Let me remind you of these readings. The first, we'll look. The parable of the, the wise and the foolish virgins. You know it well, but I'm just going to go through it a little bit because in this context, hopefully, it will maybe appear a little bit different to you. Our Lord speaking, still in the exact same context. And the kingdom of heaven shall be like unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five were foolish and five were wise. The foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Let's just pause there. Why are the, so this is like, this is the crux of the first part of this parable, the distinction between the wise and the foolish. These 10 virgins who believed, they were told, the bridegroom's coming, he's on his way, the feast is here, we're ready, we're ready. Okay, great, they'd all been ready, they all believed, they were all ready, they were all looked the same, they had their lamps, they're ready to go. What was the distinction? The foolish ones thought only of that moment, not thinking about the future. Oh, I'm ready right now, let's go. Well, but what if the Lord, what if the bridegroom should be delayed? As it turns out, it's precisely what happened, right? Those first century Christians, as we know from our, they were all, it was the, what we call, the, the scholars will call you know, the imminent return in the first and second century the early christians were thinking well no these some of the, these texts can be interpreted in that way well the bridegroom's going to come like like right now like could be like you know today or tomorrow and so there was that intense expectation our lord of course knew this and he gives them this parable if the bridegroom should be delayed so here we are in 2022 he's been delayed <laughs> he has been a bit delayed and so how long will the delay be? No man knows. Not even the son, but only the father. Okay. And it goes on. You know, I'll just get to the end of that parable there. Well, I'll read the rest. Go ahead. At midnight, the bridegroom was delayed. They all slumbered and slept. At midnight, there was the cry. Behold, it is the bridegroom. Come to meet him. They all rose, trimmed their lamps, and you have this struggle. The foolish go to buy, but the bridegroom had already come. And those who were ready went into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And the maidens came and say, Lord, open to us. And he says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, you know not today, nor the hour. As is many of the parables, they're very difficult to understand. And there's that kind of hard, it seems those foolish virgins, okay, they were foolish, let's say, but seemed that they were treated a bit harshly, I think we say. And so it, there's a kind of a mysterious prophetic word there. Uh, I don't have the answer to, to that for you, but I'm just kind of pointing it out. <laughs> and so, um, uh, again, another tendency of fallen human nature is to be hard on your neighbor and his faults and his uh, sins or foibles and kind of easy on our own. You know, we need to flip that around, of course. Uh, but at any rate, this parable here, we all think we're the prudent virgins, uh, but then maybe we're all really the foolish ones. So, all right. Point two. Well, 3B. <laughs> 3B. All right. So our Lord continues. So that's one way. So that's how, how should we live. So vigilate. <laughs> we're watching. We're watching. We're being vigilant. We're not thinking only of today's cares but also let's plan for the future. Let's take oil with us, lest our lamps go out. Okay, vigilate. Point B, then, laborate. Let us also then not only watch, pray, but work. Actually, not anything else to do. St. Benedict's rule, of course. Holy Father Benedict, ora et labora. Pray and work, and also we have recreation. But, okay, laborate. Our Lord continues. Uh, the next one then, so that, so that gospel what we just discussed, of course, is read for the, uh, for the virgins so often. The next parable is the one that's often read for confessors. So uh, men, holy men. And you know, it's the five and the two and the one talents. Our Lord calls, there's the householder. He gives five talents. He gives two, gives one, wants to see what they do with them. The five gets five more, the two gets two more, and then the point of the story of course is the one. I'll read this. Now the one who had received the one talent came forward and saying, Lord, I knew you were a hard man and you reap where you do not sow and you gather where you did not winnow. And so I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. The master answered and said, you wicked and slothful servants, you knew that I reap where I do not sow, and I gather where I have not winnowed. You ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers, that at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and even more abundantly, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And they cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness, and there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's a sufficiently grave reading, but this is the reading for the confessors. Well, they read the, they read the part about the five and the two, and then they stop <laughs> and so this part of the gospel does not get read <laughs> uh, appropriately so we're celebrating one who uh, oh well done good and faithful servant we read for the for the, um, for the confessor but, uh, at any rate again it's, it's a very similar point so vigilate we were told watch pray but then also laborate we need to do something also so we don't just sit there with, and, you know, we don't just sit there. We have to do something, obviously. The meaning of that parable, I think, is, is pretty um, clear. I don't have the answer to this one, but we'll just, this is kind of like fun footnote, but uh, we, it's, I have a question. I wasn't able to research it, or I didn't research it. Um, why does our Lord suggest that someone put their money out at usury or at interest If usury is forbidden by the law of Moses, I don't have the answer to that, but I think it's an interesting question, so I'll just leave it for those who know more about these things to to investigate. All right, good. Yes, we're doing all right. People are hanging in there. Only two casualties so far. Okay, good. We're, We're hanging in there. Good. All right. And then our Lord continues. So this is still Matthew 25, so if you think, well you just kind of pause a little bit. So Matthew 24 is end of the world. And if you want to go home, and this is excellent reading, not only for Advent or for Lent, but really the whole Christian life. Like, again, you know, I'm repeating myself, but that's what we have to do in these kinds of lectures. But um, how should we live? Those Matthew 25 is like the complete program. <laughs> it's a complete program, it has everything. So uh, here, I'm gonna read a little bit longer passage because it's just so beautiful. So now our Lord, again, continuing, this is Matthew 25. We've just had those kingdom parables we just discussed. And then he kind of a little bit jumps ahead to the, the end, the end. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in glory. So this is it now, the final apocalypse. All the angels will be with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate them, the sheep from the goats, etc., etc. Then, sheep and goats, very practical right there. Then the king will say to those at the right hand, Come, a blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry. This is our Lord speaking. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was uh, naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you (laughs) hungry, feed thee, or thirsty and give thee drink? When did we ever see a stranger and welcome thee, or naked and clothe thee? When did we see thee sick or in prison and visit thee? The king will answer. Truly, I say to you, even as you did it unto the least one of these, you did it unto me. So, well, not the believer, the point. The point is obvious. So there you have all of the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Almost all of them explicitly stated, so if you're wondering where those lists in your catechism come from, this is the, uh, the locus classicus. This is the classic uh, text right here. It's a complete program for the Christian life. Vigilate watch in prayer, laborate work, and uh, again, uh, well. Uh, do, uh, perform these uh, the, the spiritual and corporal works of, of mercy as unto the Lord. You'll notice that all of these things, um, again, it doesn't matter, you know, if, is the Lord coming at midnight tonight, like the, the world is ending in you know, two hours or three, whatever time it is, um, or is it going to be 10,000 years from now? Again, I think it's a very practical answer to say it really doesn't matter. Like we would live our lives exactly, we ought to live our lives exactly the same way. You know the famous story. I always get confused if it's St. Philip Neri or if it's St. John Bosco or maybe it's both, and they have a little chuckle about that. I don't know. You know, the, there's a famous anecdote where one of these saints is there playing chess with the boys, and someone says, "Oh, Father, you know, well, if you knew that." today was the last day, and the world was going to end, you know, today, and our Lord was coming, what would you do? And he smiled, of course, and said, well, that's easy. I would finish playing this chess game. And that's it. Uh, that is, that's the true freedom. Of course, that's the freedom that only the saints are, truly free in that way, completely at peace, uh, at any rate, free just to uh, love God, as St. Augustine says, and do what you will and so there there you are but here's a complete program okay i have to keep going or we'll get stuck and this is the last point c yes oh that's it good that's my last point good i said is there another page there's not another page so don't worry okay so vigilate pray laborate, work and then that is together pray and work together um of course, that's it's the whole, it's, a, it's the program for the Christian life. So that's all been from St. Matthew, but I just wanted to then close, and this is, well, it's just a nice sum-up verse from St. Mark. And uh, it's this. This is from Mark chapter 13, and he sums this up very well. So if you, you know if this was too long or too scattered and you wanted to just have the one-liner, the one this is the one-liner from St. Mark. So apocalypse now, Armageddon, end of the world. Here we go. Here's the answer. Oh, sorry, pod, footnote. <laughs> By the way, you'll notice that we had a q and I don't know if we'll be able to have like formal Q&A, but we can certainly discuss things. But I gave this talk at the parish that I'm at right now in Atlanta, and we had a Q&A and different things came up. And at any rate, um, on the point that no man knows the day nor the hour of the end of the world, um, it's it's in both the catechisms you know the new catechism catechism of trent so i don't i, I didn't research it further as this you know de fide definita i didn't get into all that but um again so some people were like attacking me i <laughs> like uh, not that you would but um some people there I'm like well you know take it up with the catechism it's not my it's not my problem so okay all right so here's saint mark here's saint mark of that day or that hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch therefore, and pray, for you do not know when the time will come. St. Mark. So, that's all I have. I'm sorry if the talk was overbilled uh, somewhat, <laughs> but that's my own fault, probably. I thought we'd go, and, and the uh, spiritual exercises like this, there's always, you can get the indulgence, so I have to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. So we'll go, and we can pray those prayers for his intentions, and then I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a blessing. Okay.